You are now listening to the April 28th broadcast of Unity in Christ. Today's program includes Christianese 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace. We will listen to a praise song and begin our program with Christianese 101. This is Grace, your host for the Christianese 101 program. Today, the word I want to share with you is steward. According to the dictionary, steward means a person who manages another's property or financial affairs, or someone who keeps order of a large estate. Steward comes from the Greek word oikonomos, which means household manager. 
Of course, it is not their house, but their master's house they are taking care of. The steward manages everything relating to the household. Let's look at Luke chapter 12, verses 42 through 44, and read what Jesus had to say about stewards. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. When looking at what Jesus is saying to Peter, you can see that stewards were given different tasks when compared to other regular servants. Jesus stated that stewards are in charge of their master's wealth as well as their master's servants, even when their master was away from home. They were in charge of everything until their master returned. In Genesis chapter 39, verses 4 through 6, Joseph, as we all know, was sold into slavery and bought by the Egyptian Potiphar. There, Potiphar appoints Joseph as the overseer or steward of his house, and all that he had was managed by Joseph. It is the duty of a steward to oversee the wealth of the master, and Joseph was Potiphar's steward. The Bible compares us Christians to stewards. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11, he says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterance of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Titus chapter 1 verse 7 through 9 also says this, The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. As Christians, we are God's stewards. Our surroundings, wealth, and the people around us were all given to us by God because he has allowed it. That is why we must manage everything according to the will of God who has entrusted everything to us until his return. I pray that you and I will live to be good stewards and be grateful for all the things God has entrusted to us. I look forward to speaking with you again next week.
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Genesis chapter 3 is called The Fall. It was a decision by Adam to consciously and willfully disobey God by specifically eating from a certain tree. That tree was called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Pastor John MacArthur says this about Genesis chapter 3. He says, if we don't understand this chapter, we won't understand the rest of the Bible. We cannot understand the solution to this problem unless we understand the problem itself. And we cannot understand the cure unless we understand the diagnosis. You know, yesterday we finished the lesson on hiding, hiding in our sin and hiding from our sin. And today we begin a new two-part lesson on the consequences of acting out in sin. This is the actual viewing of pornography, the engaging in masturbation, going to an adult cabaret, hiring a, a prostitute, you name it. This is the actual sinful and the rebellious behavior that we have, just like Adam chose to eat from that tree. So just what are those ramifications when I choose to keep looking at pornography over years and decades? Well, there are many, but God loves you too much to not discipline you in this area. And why does he discipline Because pornography is a cheap physical substitute for the emotional and spiritual intimacy that he wants you to truly experience. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss three things. Number one, how uncontrollable consequences have been set in motion after we act out in sin. Number two, how we can't fix sin, let alone the consequences of it. And then number three, why it's true that we gain forgiveness from the act of sinning, but that forgiveness doesn't release us from those consequences. This podcast is from a larger lesson series. It's called The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. The spiral itself is a set of awareness triggers that explain the location as to where you are inside this habit, inside this 
this bondage or addiction, whatever you want to call it, to pornography. So let's get started with today's lesson. This is Five Consequences of Sexual Sin. Father, I am reminded of the scripture, be still and know that I'm God. Before that air conditioner kicked on, it was incredibly quiet in here. And I'm guessing that for many of us, it's the first time it's been that quiet all week for five minutes, ten minutes. And it's in the stillness of just being with you that you reveal yourself to us. Thank you for reminding us that we don't have to do anything to be in your presence. You're with us. And we don't have to do anything to gain your favor. Christ has already done that. We pray and you hear our prayers. Thank you for the reminder tonight to be still. To be still and know that I'm God. Father, I continue to pray that you would teach us tonight as we continue to go through this material dealing with acting out and the consequences because of our acting out. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, gentlemen, if you would, please turn your Bibles to Genesis 3. So we are on trigger number 7 tonight, the actual acting out. Dealing with recovery or addiction or whatever you want to call it, If you go to the bookstore, this is where either temptation or the acting out is where most books focus in, start. But if you notice here, we've gone through seven different triggers to get here, right? We got the awareness, something's going on, I'm vulnerable to something. That's my first key. I need to either pray, confess, or flee. Unhealthy thoughts, some type of subconscious going on. The actual temptation, my desire to want to do whatever it is that I want to do. Wait a second, I probably shouldn't do that, so I put the brakes on a little bit. I try to resist. That's not going to be that bad. I'm going to rationalize it. I'm going to rationalize my, my behavior and my thoughts. As soon as I make that rationalization, boom, I'm going to move into a place of hiding so that I can then act out in sin. So at this point, really acting out, it's about the actual consequences of our sin. Consequences should be considered as we go through this, but the seduction of the promised pleasure is going to prevent that. After we act out in sin, we can't go back and undo what we just did, right? My grandfather liked to say, you can't unsaw sawdust. Anybody ever heard that? You can't unsaw dust, son unsaw sawdust like you can't do anything with that salt you can't put it back on the board all right let's look at genesis 3 looking at uh, verse 11 genesis 3 verse 11 have you eaten from the tree whose fruit i commanded you not to eat and by the way we're going to look at consequences in this passage the man replied well it was the it was the woman it was the woman you gave me she, she gave me the fruit, and then I ate it. We haven't got far, have we, since the beginning of humanity, how we like to blame. Well, as the buck has been around a long that's, time. That's part of, uh, that's absolutely right. But look what the Lord does, guys. He says, he asked the woman, what have you done? 
The serpent, the serpent deceived me, and that's why I ate it. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, well, because you have done this, so that's consequence number one, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You're going to crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you shall live. Then God said to the woman, I'm going to sharpen the pain of your pregnancy. And in the pain, you're going to give birth. Consequence number two. And your desire, you're going to desire to control your husband, but he's going to rule over you. That's consequence number three. That desire there is, is not a sexual desire. It's a desire to literally control you, to tell you what to do. That's her sinful bent, is to nag. A man's sinful bent is then to neglect. Or we get tired of it and we, we get violent. We either neglect or we get aggressive. So that's consequence number three, that her desire will to control her husband. But he's going to rule over you. And to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit, by the way, I commanded you not to eat. Remember, I told you that. I didn't tell the woman that. I told you that directly. The ground is cursed because of you and all of your life. You're going to struggle to scratch a living from it. So that's consequence number four. You guys want to know why it's so hard to, to make a living at times? It's right here. Verse 18 It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you'll have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. Just a little reminder of where we came from. For you were made from dust, and from dust you will return, Adamah, from the ground. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. That's consequence number five. And he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. Once again, another reminder. So five consequences because of sin. It wasn't the actual physical eating of the fruit, whatever the fruit was. Everybody thinks it's an apple. I heard a pastor say, I, I, I think it had some kind of milk chocolate swirled in it or something. Just saying some type of peanut butter parfait with <laughs> banana dipped in... You know, but no, it was the desire to want to be like God. Even in a perfect garden, even in without sin, there was still that temptation. We know how great things, like, there's a song or something like that, like, uh, I didn't know what prison was until I experienced freedom. So it's like, you don't know how good things are until you have a bad, or how bad things are until you have a good. It takes one, it's perspective. I think he had the best and the worst. They did know after the fact, yeah. Right. I don't think we've had the best. We never know what Adam and Eve had for that small time. I don't know how much time that would have been. We have no clue how awesome that would have been. Yeah, their life changed dramatically in a moment from perfection to imperfection. Yeah, I mean, we live in houses that we didn't build. We eat food that most of the time we didn't cook. You know, we wear clothes that we didn't make. Adam and Eve did not have that luxury, did they? So we see five consequences from one choice. And make no doubt about it, it was Adam's responsibility. He should have stepped in and went, "Uh uh-uh. He was right there the whole time because the Lord spoke to him and said, do not eat from this tree. A lot of people go, huh, it was the woman's fault. No, it's not. 
It's his fault. He was specifically instructed by the Lord. So key point number one on your worksheet is uncontrollable consequences have been set in motion. Uncontrollable consequences have been set in motion. When we choose to sin, we choose to suffer. Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The New Living Translation says this, Don't be misled. You you cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So we we see in the book of Galatians that we've got two choices. There is no in-between. You're either living from your flesh or you're living in the Spirit. You've got two choices there. There's no gray area. Key point number two. Jesus came for a problem that we can't manage. We can't fix sin, let alone the consequences of sin. Jesus came for a problem that we can't manage. If Jesus came for a problem that we could actually fix, would he have come at all? If some of us could actually fix this, would he have come at all? Of course not. Key point number three, it's true that we gain forgiveness from the act of sinning. But that forgiveness doesn't release us from the consequences. Jesus came for a problem that we can't manage. Have you ever thought about that? If we could just take care of our own sin problem, you know, this lust problem that I've got, would Jesus ever step down off his throne in heaven? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, if we ourselves could take care of our own lust problem, this sin problem that I have, would Jesus have ever stepped down off his throne in heaven? As we've talked about before in this series, Jesus didn't come to stop us from sinning, from lusting. He came to give us a new heart so that we would and that we could stop sinning. Grace is this gift that we don't deserve. Unfortunately, that grace can turn into like a cheap grace. Bonhoeffer called it a cheap grace because we can turn this thing into a license for me to sin. We can just say to ourselves, well, you know what? God's going to forgive me. God's going to forgive me. And he will because that's who he is. But as we continue discussing in the series, there's a difference between consequences, grace, and the justice of God. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 6, Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit Man, they're going to harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. I've experienced so many consequences due to my own stupid sexual sin, to my own shame. 
I would just bore you to death if I listed them. But it's it's certainly not something that I'm proud of. But here's the thing. One of the consequences that I could have avoided was choosing to install Covenant Eyes on my computer years before I actually did. Thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. If you're in Phoenix, hey, you are invited to join my weekly community group. It's for men and women, husbands and wives, single, divorced. If you don't believe in God, but you're searching and you want to know some answers, come. Everybody's welcome. You're invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday night, 7 p.m., at Northern Hills Community Church. We're in Building A, Room 301. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. You can email me your questions at DustinDanielsRadio.com. Would love to hear from you and respond to your questions. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says the kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. That power is the very name, very shed blood, of Jesus Christ.
Listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. Download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, available on Play Store and App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Androids or iPhones. Just search for Heart and Soul to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602 866 8999 or org at gmail.com that's h-e-a-r-t-a-n-d-s-e-o-u-l dot org at gmail.com Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Encountering Opposition based on Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 9 through 20. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Well, okay, Nehemiah begins with his brother coming to Persia, and Nehemiah's a cupbearer. He is probably the second most powerful man in the world, at least the known world that we're talking about. And his bro comes, and he says, hey, how are things? They're in the living room, maybe. How are things in Jerusalem? And his brother says, terrible. What? Terrible. The walls are broken down. The people are vulnerable to the enemy. The work of rebuilding the temple hasn't been completed. The gates are still burned with fire. It's terrible. There's shame and reproach upon the people. And maybe you remember I said that if a city's walls were broken down, it was also considered a shame on the God because the God wasn't strong enough to protect the people. So it was also a reproach on the one true and living God. So Nehemiah was grieved by this. Nehemiah says, I... For weeks and weeks and weeks, I cried and I fasted and I prayed. And then God opens the door for him one time when he's in, you know, he always has access to the king. But the king noticed that he didn't look right. And the king said, hey, what's up? And he says, well, now that you ask, O king, 
he says, and he explained what was going on. The king says, well, what do you want me to do? Come on. When the king says, what do you want me to do? All right. I need money. I need stuff. I need authority. I need letters from you to help me get back to Jerusalem. And I want to be the man who rebuilds those walls. And the king astoundingly says, go for it. Here's everything you need. That is the hand of God. In fact, Nehemiah says, and the good hand of God was upon me. So he doesn't take the credit as we should not take the credit when God does something for us and we realize, you know, this is not a human thing. I mean, you know, this is not, oh, my great planning and my great ideas. Rather, this is what God is doing. So trust God. Ask big things of God. He's our king. You know, Nehemiah, he wasn't timid. He says, okay, I need, and he asks big things. And God says, ask of me. And the Bible says, sometimes you don't have because you do not ask. That's what James says. So ask. Ask, Father in heaven. So God sends Nehemiah. He sends someone who knew their needs, who had been working on their behalf to deliver them before they even knew it. And Nehemiah's name means the comforter. That's what his name means. And so God is sending the comforter to his people, and it'll be the comforter that's going to come alongside them and help them. Just like God sends the Holy Spirit to us, right? Even before we know what God's up to, here comes, he's called in the Bible, the comforter, the encourager, and the Holy Spirit comes alongside us, and he says, you know what, I'm going to help you walk. I'm going to help you get the work of God done in your life. Amen? Now, I want you to remember something as you read the scripture, and that is, there is, I'm just going to say it this way, there are two ways of applying the scripture. The first way, always, is the literal interpretation. I mean, you're asking questions like this when we're reading, say, this kind of account. Okay, who are the people he's talking about? What time is this happening? Try to get in the minds of the folks. You know, what would they be thinking? What's their feeling, their attitude? All of this kind of stuff. You want to maybe say, what is the, the time that this happens? So you ask those kind of literal questions, okay? And you, you want those kind of answers. Because this really happened. This is history. But then... You want to ask, this is a second kind of application, is what is the spiritual truth here? What is the spiritual thing that you want me to learn? Jesus would take Old Testament incidents and he would use them as spiritual teachings, you know, make a personal application like Jonah and the great fish was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish. And Jesus said, well, you know, as Jonah was three days and three nights, well, even so, I will be three days and three nights in the grave, you know, I will rise from the dead. So he makes a spiritual application. And the Bible says the things that happened in the Old Testament were written for us so that we could see the spiritual application for our own lives. So I want to look at it both ways, but primarily the spiritual application today. Now, let's look at chapter 2, verse 11. That's kind of where we actually are. So, I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Okay, let me just pause, a little spiritual application here. The third day 
often in the Bible is a day of new life or resurrection, the third day. So we happen to know, some of us, how this story is going to end, right? We know that this is a time of rebuilding, rebirth, renewal, new life for Jerusalem and its inhabitants. So here's the third day. So God works in that third day. And I think we've all had a third day experience when we were saved, didn't we? We were raised to a new life. So verse 12, then I arose in the night and I and a few men with me and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. So it wasn't a big you know, caravan winding through this area. So he goes at night. He'd been there like three days, kind of rested up. And then he goes out on this secret uh, reconnaissance mission. It must have been a full moon. I mean, right? How else are you going to see? He didn't have a flashlight. And if he wants to be kind of under the radar, he's not going to have a bunch of torches. So there's enough light by the moon to be able to see what's going on. But it's such rubble, uh, the city is still in such repair that he comes to areas that his horse can't even go through and he has to go on foot. Look at verse 13. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And he said, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, its gates that had been destroyed by fire. So there's this general desolation, breaking down, ruined walls, verse 14. Then it went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. So like we're talking about big rubble, probably beams that were crossing over the road, so he had to walk. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. He's going counterclockwise. I know that because I studied it. Okay, that's all. He's going counterclockwise around the city, entered back by the valley gate and returned. Verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were doing the work. A former president of Columbia University said, there are three kinds of people in the world, listen to this, those who don't know what's happening, those who watch what's happening, and those who make things happen. And Nehemiah was one of those make things happen kind of guys, wasn't he? God's looking for men, he's looking for women, he's looking for youth who will make things happen. You're not just followers, but you're doers. And God's going to put things on your heart. He's going to put big things on your heart. And don't be afraid to go for it. And you know, when it's the Lord, other people will rally around. I know when we started Calvary, I mean, we started Calvary with nine people plus Leslie and, and me. And, you know, it was nine people that rallied around us. Woohoo! You know what I'm saying? But there were nine people who had caught the vision. And then, you know, I'm like 23, and I have, you know, these people who were twice my age who were coming alongside. I was like, what? You know, I can't believe it. And they were all, you know, oh, our young pastor. And I was like, they're, you know, a little kid, but they were around me. And I had a vision. 
I don't mean I saw something from God, but in my heart, I understood what God wanted me to do. Leslie did too. And so we move forward, and there are a lot of obstacles in the way, but God, God bless. So move ahead. I was young, okay? But I didn't let that stand in my way. Look at verse 18 now. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. See, they didn't know chapter 1. He hadn't written chapter 1 yet, right? They didn't know all of his prayer and fasting and this story with the king. So he tells his testimony. Testimonies are motivators for other people, right? When you got a testimony and you share what God has done in your life, that'll stir up other people to get up and do something for God as well. Hey, this is a good hand of God on my life. And people are saying, that is so cool. I want to get behind what God's doing in your life. And you're also telling them, look, if God did something for me, I know God will do something for you as well. So he told them the words the king had spoken. I'm reading on in verse 18. And they said, let us rise up and build. So now they're speaking the words that Nehemiah, they've bought in, right? He said, let's rise up and build. And now the people have, yeah, let's rise up and build. So leaders kind of set the temperature for the rest of the people. And so people look to you, you know, what's your reaction? Nehemiah didn't come and he wasn't crying anymore, right? He wasn't moaning and he wasn't fasting. That time had been done. He got his plan from God. Now the time was to move and work. And so he prayed, he planned, and now they work. The people are all excited. Now, here comes the bad guys, all right? Verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Please remember that line. What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They're very bad people. And I'm sure that Nehemiah thought, I wish you guys would just go away. You ever have people like that in your life? You just wish they'd go away? Let me see. Come on, let me see. All right, hopefully it's not the person next to you. I just wish they'd leave. I wish they'd get out of my life. Leave me alone. But here, you know, everybody's excited. Everybody's ready to start. And these guys come along. When initially this all began and Nehemiah arrived in verse uh, 10 of this chapter, he was met by just Sanballat and Tobiah. But now, in chapter 19, there are not just two, but now there are what? Three. I just want you to understand that opposition will maybe add as you move forward to do the work of God. There are three. And you see, often when God starts to work in your life, opposition increases. Don't be surprised. The opposition was definitely growing. We're going to see later that these men will make six attempts, try to stop work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and its gates, and they will attempt to assassinate Nehemiah. At first, the enemy just mocked and ridiculed them. 
Satan will often belittle and scorn those who are working for the Lord. He'll belittle you. It might be something a relative says, someone you work with, go to school with, and they'll mock you, belittle you for your beliefs. Someone has said, first the enemy openly mocks the Jews, ridiculing their effort to rebuild the walls. Adventuresome and courageous pioneers have often faced the laughter of jealous observers. The first American steamboat took 32 hours to go from New York to Albany. People laughed. The horse and buggy passed the early motor car as if it were standing still. Well, it usually was. People laughed. The first electric light bulb was so dim, people had to use a gas lamp to see it. They laughed. The first airplane came down in 59 seconds, and after it landed to the ground, people laughed. All right, there's always going to be the dogs yapping on the sidelines, right? There's always going to be the people on the sidelines telling you that you're not doing things right. There's always going to be people who laugh and scorn and mock you. Just be aware of it, okay? When it happens, don't go, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening to me. But when the belittling and the scorn didn't work, they then turned to open threats. Look at chapter 4, go over a few pages and look at verses 7 and 8. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arab and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, now we got a big bunch of people, heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very, what? Angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. The enemy was furious. As we have said, the enemy is not happy when God's work is done in somebody's life. When the Lord is working, Satan just doesn't kick back and say, oh yeah, you know, just you know, take somebody out of my hand, you know, out of the clutches of my hand. Oh yeah, deliver them from hell. Oh, set them free from you know, their addictions. Go ahead, it's okay with me. Are you kidding me? The enemy is furious. He doesn't want to let go, but of course he has to let go when Jesus steps into the scene, amen? Satan has no control when Jesus steps in. But he doesn't want people's lives rebuilt any more than these enemies of the people wanted to see Jerusalem rebuilt. Now again, going back to chapter 2, looking at verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, I told you, hang on to this thought, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Were they rebelling? No. They thought, well, maybe they could get a message back to the king saying, hey, they're rebuilding the walls of the city so they can rebel against you. King knew Nehemiah well enough, and the king had also wisely given Nehemiah papers so that if the enemy challenged what he was doing, 
All he had to do was show him the papers that gave him the authority to do what he was doing. And when the enemy of our souls challenges what God is doing in our lives, or he challenges you for what God is doing in your life, pull out papers the king has given you. That's the word of God. This is our authority. Oh, you wonder, Satan? Why I can walk in liberty? Well, let me show you the king's papers here. Oh, you're challenging this work in my life? Oh, wait, there's a paper. That's a paper for that. You're wondering while I'm praying for this person to get saved and delivered and set free? Oh, I have authority. Let me show you that paper. Too. We've got a whole stack of papers right here, don't we? That the king has given us. And that's our authority. Satan will mock you. Satan will belittle you. What are some of the things that Satan would say to you? You don't know what you are doing. Remember, he says, what is this thing you are doing? That's what these evil men said. And Satan will say the same thing to you. What is this you think you're doing for God? Have you ever built a wall before? No. Have you ever put a gate on its hinges? No. Then what makes you think you can do what you're doing? Well, you might say, well, you do have a good point. I don't know really what I'm doing. But I do know that God will give me the grace I need to accomplish what he's called me to do. It's been said that God's callings are his enablings. If God's called you to do something, he will enable you. He'll give you what you need. Guys, you don't, you don't have to be some great master theologian. You don't have to have all your Bible questions answered to just move ahead. We started Calvary, and I did not understand everything. We came out of a cult. We were taught wrong on a lot of areas, and I did not have it all. I didn't have all my ducks in a row. I didn't, there were some things that I was very confused about, but you know what? God cleared those things up. You know, no, I had never done this before. No, I don't know what I'm doing. And maybe you're feeling like I've never shared Jesus with anybody before. I don't know what I'm doing. Should I take a class? No. Use your story. What have you and the king talked about? What have you and God talked about? What God do in your life? Share it. How can they argue with it's your testimony, it's your story? Just share it. You can, in your own word. Well, I can't remember all the Bible verses. Paraphrase them. Just say, you know, I know God loves me. You can't remember John 3.16. Or your mind goes blank. Well, paraphrase it. It's okay. People paraphrase the Bible, don't they? You've got translations that are paraphrased. Well, you don't know anything. Well, what makes you think you know what you're doing? Or this could stop you dead in your tracks. It's when Satan brings up some shameful thing in your life. Everything stops then. That stops so many believers from moving forward in their walk with Christ because Satan brings up your past or maybe something presently that you're doing. He's a master tempter. And then if we fall for the temptation, then immediately he accuses us and puts shame on us, right? Now, when we come to Jesus and we ask him forgiveness for our sins, forgiven, of course. But you know what often lingers is shame. 
Because we believe that all our sins are placed on Jesus on the cross. He died. He paid for our sins. He rose from the dead. That is the proof positive that our sins are forgiven. Okay. But what about my shame? It's kind of the lingering odor of sin. That's what shame is. And what I want you to know is Jesus also died for your shame. He died to take away your shame. When Adam and Eve sinned, they felt shame. You know, we were ashamed, you know, and they're hiding from God. We were ashamed because we knew that we were naked and they're trying to cover themselves up. And God said, who told you, you know? And so you have to understand that part of sin, the way sin works, is it brings shame. But look, when Jesus saves you, the letters say you have no shame anymore either. Let go of the shame, okay, because it's going to stop you from being able to move on with God. Some of you are still dealing with shame from something that happened 10 years ago. I'm going to say just a nice way, get over it, because God doesn't remember it. He says he casts all our sins. He says, I will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea and will remember them no more. How does that happen? How does God not remember something? That's one of those things. I just believe it. I'm not going to try to parse it, you know, and figure out how that can happen theologically. I just, okay, he's not going to remember my sins. Hooray. So why am I? right? So you get what I'm saying? Hello? Okay, that's really good. I really want you to hear that. It's important. Now, when the enemy was accusing them and mocking them, you know, what is this you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Nehemiah didn't start arguing with him. They didn't start, you know, into some kind of a debate. He didn't even go there. Look at what he says in verse 20. In verse 20 said, you've got to see this. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven, what a great way to start. When the enemy accuses you and the enemy's saying, you know, you've got wrong motives and all, he started with saying, the God of heaven. Amen? Amen. He doesn't start by saying, well, I'm. He says, the God of heaven. I love it. The God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build but hey read it with me any translation but what you have no portion or right or claim in jerusalem somebody say amen Amen. you have no right you have no portion you have no claim in this city now they kind of thought they did because they had lived there for 70 years, I mean, their families, they were half Jews, they weren't pure Jews anymore, they had married with pagans, and somebody, one of the families thought, well, we have a right to be here because I'm married to the high priest, you know, daughter, we got family, Nehemiah, they'll deal with that later, but Nehemiah says, you know, listen, you have no right, no portion, you have absolutely no claim on being here And I want you to know that is true with the enemy's desire to try to mess with you. He has no rights. He has no portion or claim on you. And you have an authority in Christ. Now, we're in a spiritual battle. We really are. And this battle is one 
that we don't want to forget. Hold your place here in Nehemiah and go way to the right. We look at the book of Ephesians. Just want you to remember that, that we have a Sanballat or Tobiah or Geshem opposing us. Ephesians 6 verse 10, look. Finally be strong where? In the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God. He's going to talk about that. But the importance is that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And I've told you that Greek word is methodia of the devil. What does that word sound like in English? Method, And it's where we get the word method. Satan has methods. It's been translated wiles, wily, like wily coyote, yeah. <laughs> wiles. He has schemes. He is a keen observer. I'm not focusing on him today, right? It's on the Lord, but I do want you to be aware. He is watching you. He is scoping out. He's stalking you. You all are being stalked. You all have a stalker watching you all the time. Enemy drones, you know, watching you, all this weird stuff that people can do now. He's watching you. And Satan wants to find the weak place or places in your life, some place where he might get into you, discourage you, bring you down, hurt you, cause you to sin, shame, the whole cycle. And he'll wait a lifetime for the right opportunity. You see, he's like a lion. Peter says he, our enemy is like a roaring lion and seeking whom he may devour. A lion will just watch and wait. You know, say, oh, that gazelle. That gazelle always drinks at, you know, four in the afternoon, always comes to the same place. It's like, have you, National Geographic. You want to shout, Change of schedule, gazelle. <laughs> what are you? Don't you know? Every single day you do the same thing. The lion is watching you. If you would just change, if you do a different deal, if you maybe stand by the rhinos or something, you know, you'd be safe. But, you know, the same thing. Head down. Once in a while, ears doing this thing. And the, the lion knows. And so... At the right moment, you've all seen the chase. You've all seen what happens. So the enemy, he is a roaring lion seeking me to devour. And we must resist him firmly in our faith. Now, we're not going to over-empower him. And what I say, I do not mean to say that Satan has more power than the Lord. Uh, the Bible says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And the enemy just can't grab us and take us away. But we've got to understand there is opposition. And if you're not experiencing any opposition in your spiritual walk, I just have to wonder, what are you doing? If you're not having any kind of opposition, what are you doing? Well, it might not be all the time, but if it's not now, it will come. Just be wise, be aware. We're in a spiritual battle and it's not flesh and blood. You can't pull out a gun or some, you know, a tank and blow away our enemy. 
because it's a spiritual struggle. Verse 12, for a struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the hours we can't see. So Nehemiah took his stand on truth. He had authority to move ahead and rebuild. And as believers, we take our stand on truth. We have the authority of Jesus Christ. Satan, you have to move. When we pray according to the will of God, he says, I will answer your prayers if you pray according to my will. And look at verse, back to Nehemiah 2.20. Nehemiah said, I replied to them, we're just looking at it again, the God of heaven will make us prosper. Amen. We as servants will rise up and build. You're not going to stop us. You have no portion. Just reminding the enemy, you have no portion, no right, no claim, no authority here in Jerusalem. God's given me his authority, and they're in the letters right here. Basically, he says God is on our side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Secondly, he's saying we're his servants and we're moving on. I want to encourage you, move on. If you have messed up, move on, get up. You don't have to stand in the corner. God's not doing that to you. Get up, move on. Don't let the enemy stop you. We're going to arise and build. You're not stopping us. We're moving ahead. And I think thirdly, you have no right to hinder us. Your claim on this city is now none and void. You used to keep, Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, used to keep Jerusalem under your thumb. No more. The people of God, the work of God, the Lord God of Israel has shown up and you have to move, all right? We're claiming the territory one more time and Satan cannot keep you under his thumb. He has no right, no authority in your life, all right? If God blesses these, you know, the building of a city, he's blessing blocks of stone and mortar and wooden gates, then you got to think about this. How much more would he bless us? Because God doesn't love stones and mortar and wood, but God loves you. God wants to bless you. And this whole incident is written for us to understand how God works, God's plan for our lives, and God's plan for us to move on in his power, in his strength. And just learn the lessons, believe the lessons. Stand with the letters in your hand. Get to know what the letters say. Let's pray. We are grateful, Lord, for time we share together in your word and for the Holy Spirit who takes the word and brings it alive to us. And as we read it and share it, there are some things that just stick. That's just part of what makes us completely convinced that your word is alive and powerful and it's doing a work in our lives. So I'm praying for my brothers, my sisters, that nothing will stop them, that they won't believe the statements of the enemy when he mocks them that they'll move forward in your strength 
stepping out of shame, if that's been what's put the brakes on moving forward, not believing ridicule, or maybe not caring, not entering into arguments, but rather just speaking testimony, believing the word in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.
my trophies at last I lay down I will cling to the old rugged cross And exchange it someday for a This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.